I'm Alex Mosetta, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. We obviously did have a ruling in Epic v. Apple, uh, where the judge said that Apple is not a monopolist. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about uh, a common theme that uh, you know we've talked about for, I don't know, uh, a year or so now as it relates to asset price inflation with tech valuations, just basically going through the roof. Uh, more signs of that happening where there's actually a, a good article that came out here in PitchBook talking about what's driving private equities march on VC. We've talked about this the past few months looking at basically just this concept of the VC firms getting crammed down into earlier and earlier stage deals. And you have these larger funds that have to put money to work and they are coming into the mid to late stage, kind of gross stage tech startup deals. Um, and this article does a great job really highlighting that private equity firms have revamped, have ramped up their exposure to startups and are participating in more than half of all U.S. venture capital deals by value, up from about 37% just two years ago. So keep in mind that's by value. So if I go, uh, if, I, if I scroll down in this piece here and you look at, um, they have a chart here on U.S. VC mega deals. So VC fundraises over $100 million within 2021. This is so far in 2021, gang. Um, as of just the first two quarters in 2021, you have over 300, 100 plus million dollar fundings. Compared to 2020, there was less than 300, maybe right around 300 for all of 2020. So we're over actually 320, approaching 400 deals, over 100 million dollars just in the first half of 2021. Okay. As a, which is just dwarfing uh, entire years prior. Uh, over $80 billion deployed in these mega deals in the first half of 2021 as compared to, uh, looks like maybe around $75 billion for all of 2020. And the numbers in 2019 and 2018 are even lower than 2020. So that stat, PE participating in, in at least half of all the VC funding, that's an aggregate VC dollars. But that's why this is happening, right? You have this first chart showing private equity is this green line. They are up at 50% um, share of all US VC deals by value. And then you have asset managers, which would be like hedge funds and all and alternative types of funds are at 46.7%. And these are through the first half of 2021 numbers, right? But wow, these are up from 45, 46% in 2020 for PE, 38% for uh, hedge funds and asset managers in 2020. You can just see, right? They're coming in. They've got a lot more money than your average VC fund. They're coming in. They're cramming down. They're taking the mid to late stage deals which is then causing the VC to have to look earlier and earlier, right? And that's how you see this cascading effect for just insane tech startup uh, valuations. 
And I actually don't think it's going anywhere because I don't think the money printing is going anywhere in this country or around the world. And I don't think interest rates are going up. So yeah, I actually think this trend continues, even though it doesn't make any sense. A lot of things don't make sense these days. Um, another byproduct of this, another topic related to this is this article from the information startup founders are cashing out in their series A fundraises. What? Can you, you know what that means? It's like you started a company a year ago, maybe two years ago, no more than three years ago if you're doing your series A. Okay. You're less than three years into this company. It's a startup. The thing doesn't even have a proven business model. The thing has some initial traction, kind of has like an MVP. And you're taking money out of the company as a founder? What investors would agree to that, right? And the answer is more and more of them because they're all getting crammed down and they got to deploy this money, right? Because they're actually, you know, they're charging management fees. They need to get their carry. You got to deploy the money. You have a, in these funds, right? You have a set amount of time to deploy the money. That's kind of the, the rub. They need to deploy. You don't want to chase these deals, but man, you don't see this kind of stuff. You've got record high Series A valuations. Yep. Um, founders retaining control even as they turn some of their holdings into cash. And some investors are playing ball, agreeing to buy founder shares in order to win competitive deals. It used to be that founders would ask for secondary sales. Now venture capitalists are coming out of the gate with it. Half of Series A and B deals now have some secondary component for founders. It's crazy. It's unheard of. So, another uh, somewhat crazy topic is Coinbase. Coinbase, you know, everyone knows it for having recently gone IPO. Um, you know, the, the biggest player to buy and sell your crypto you know, kind of like Robinhood for crypto. They IPO'd at over $300 a share. We were, we were covering them about on the secondary market prior to their IPO. They were having like a $100 billion valuation. At the time of their IPO at roughly a $100 billion valuation, they had like a 20, 25X revenue multiple, revenue multiple. They've come out with their second quarter earnings had very strong revenue growth up over a thousand percent from the from the Q2 year prior in 2020. Right. They did over two billion dollars in revenue Q2 of 2021, and they did less than 200 million uh, in Q2 of 2020. Right. So phenomenal growth all around. But the stock is falling. Opening at in the low 300s, like 320, 330 bucks a share is now down to $243 a share. Uh, they just announced that they want to raise a $1.5 billion. They want to issue $1.5 billion of debt. And the stock is now falling on that news. It would use the proceeds of a bond sale for general corporate purposes, such as investments in product development or future acquisitions of other companies or technologies. And not to mention Coinbase is now Coinbase Ventures founded in 2018, is the third most active corporate VC in the United States. They are on track to jump into first place 
for the year of 2021 in total deals closed, beating Salesforce Ventures and Google Ventures. Yeah, they have in Q3 alone, it looks like they have done over 20 deals. It's not a cumulative number. And Q3 is not even over. It did like 18 deals in Q2, about 20 deals in Q1. It's deploying a lot of money. A lot of money. So maybe they're using some of this bond money to, to, uh, to, to fuel their, their VC arm. Yikes. I mean, they're deploying over a billion dollars just in just this year alone in, in, in VC investments. Now, is Coinbase a platform? No, they're not a platform. Would Coinbase be in Plat? No, they wouldn't be in Plat. Why? Coinbase is very much so like Robinhood. They are a utility. They are a linear piece of technology that lets you buy and sell shares. Just like you have Robinhood, interactive brokers, et cetera, that are allowing you to buy and sell stocks, but it's the New York Stock Exchange. It's the NASDAQ are the actual investment platforms. So ICE um, and the NASDAQ are in plat, for example. ICE, which owns the New York Stock Exchange, yeah, Intercontinental Exchange, owns the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, they are in plat, okay? Um, and they own a bunch of other exchanges and, and, and clearing houses and all these kinds of things. So they are a platform business. Coinbase is not. Will Coinbase be able to survive and, and have enough defensibility to survive the entrance of Robinhood getting into crypto? So here's an article from Robinhood. Robinhood does so much crypto trading, they've actually disclosed that Doge, people, basically their customers not trading Dogecoin could be an issue or actually a liability. They've disclosed it as a risk to investors. Robinhood says Dogecoin accounted for 62% of crypto revenue in Q2. Crypto made up over 50% of transaction-based revenue in the second quarter, up from 17% in the first quarter. This is 2021 numbers. More than 60% of its funded accounts traded crypto in the quarter. These are big numbers, right? Robinhood said its revenue from crypto transactions was $233 million, up from $5 million in the year-ago quarter. Big dependency on crypto. Who else is getting into crypto? Interactive brokers is getting into crypto. Trade crypto for less coins, says their email. Clients with individual brokerage accounts in the U.S., now have the ability to seamlessly trade uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash through interactive brokers, uh, different trading platforms. And you know, interactive brokers, you don't want to mess with this company. They are highly sophisticated. They know what they're doing. They understand how the margins work in these kinds of businesses. Coinbase has been their margins are ridiculous, and I think indefensible. And that's why you see Robinhood getting in here. I mean, how are they making these kinds of fees, right? Compare the fees that you're making on the trading volume for crypto versus what you're doing in the stock market, right? One is a regulated, mature market, and the other one is not. And guess where, where do you think you're going to be able to take advantage of consumers 
and get these kinds of fees. Crypto. So doesn't mean that these businesses are going to go bankrupt, but I don't think that I think this is absolutely a bubble. I don't think that Coinbase has the defensibility. There's no platform. There's no network effect. And you're going to have interactive brokers and a bunch of other players just get more and more into crypto. And we spoke about when Coinbase went uh, public that a big part of their ability to uh, drive revenue growth was their ability to onboard new coins. So interactive brokers is just coming in here with five coins, right? Coinbase has, they're going to give you a much wider selection. And so as you get into this race to say, how can we onboard more and more coins, which are going to be more and more illiquid, which are going to have allow these uh, trading sites to gouge you on these alternative coins, these lesser known coins that hopefully are going to pop and you're going to make a lot of money on, right? But it's a very risky business. And I love to see interactive brokers and more of these established traditional players get into this space uh, and really, you know, see how well Coinbase and these Robinhoods can actually play the game. And I think that's why you're seeing, um, you know, you're seeing that with the Coinbase stock down where it is. Okay. So all this news about Apple and Epic, uh, the official news is that Apple won the lawsuit. That Epic lost the lawsuit. Now, the but is the follow-up details from the judge, this Judge Gonzalez Rogers. And so what Epic wanted to do is be able to launch its own app store so you could have a bunch of different games, kind of like this metaverse concept that we've talked about on the show. The interesting thing with all of this is that actually that's Roblox. Roblox has a Thousands of games, and you can get them through the Apple app. You can get, you can get your Roblox app on here, um, and then you can go download a bunch of games within the Roblox app. That's essentially what Epic wanted to do, but the judge struck that down. Okay, well, that part doesn't really make much sense to me, but okay. The interesting thing, how Roblox was able to do that, Roblox built a viable business for years, decades actually, before coming to iOS or Android. Those are actually the last uh, uh, pl development platforms that they rolled out onto. iOS and Android were, uh, you know, towards the more recent, these last few years of Roblox's journey, but Roblox was building this community of gamers and, and, and game developers for years and years and years, decade, over a decade, before they then said, hey, we'd like to build an iPhone app, right? And obviously they were in talk with Apple and their whole, their whole business model was built on having uh, apps within the, 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 you know, the meta app, right? The, this metaverse concept. To me, why does Apple get to allow Roblox to do this, but not Epic? Now, the flip side of that is if, hey, if you're Epic, maybe you should start doing this kind of app within an app elsewhere build a business outside of the, you know, Apple ecosystem, Android ecosystem, and then get enough power, get enough scale, and then you'll be able to have that leverage and, and, uh, and, and, you know, bring Apple to terms potentially, right? But that's not what happened with this court case. Instead, the judge shut that, that down. The judge said that Apple was not a monopolist. Here was her uh, language and her conclusion. 
Thus, and in summary, the court does not find that Apple is an antitrust monopolist in the sub-market for mobile gaming transactions. I mean, it makes no sense. How, how, how does she come to that conclusion, right? In the mobile gaming transaction market, mobile gaming, there's two companies. It's Apple and it's Google. And she's saying that these two companies, which split the transactions roughly equally, are, don't have monopolies. Hmm. Okay. So, duopoly? Is that the word she'd want? Duopoly? I mean, how literally does she expect to monopoly, right? You need to have 70% market share. Then she would consider it a monopoly. Kind of ridiculous here. However, the court does find that Apple's conduct in enforcing anti-steering restrictions is anti-competitive. A remedy to eliminate those provisions is appropriate. This measured remedy will increase competition, increase transparency, increase consumer choice and information while preserving Apple's iOS ecosystem, which has pro-competitive justifications. Moreover, it does not require the court to micromanage business operations. Basically, what she's saying is that you, as an app developer, can now divert uh, traffic to pay for in-game purchases by linking them outside of the app. If you want to give them a link to go out of the app and then go to a separate website and pay, and presumably pay a um, smaller fee, Apple's taking 30%. So if you say, well, this was going to be 10 bucks, it's not going to be seven, but you know, maybe it'll be 850. And um, Epic in this case makes an extra 15%. The consumer saves 15%. Apple gets none of that. Okay. Wouldn't make sense to go to seven bucks because if you're Epic, then you might as well just leave the in-app payment workflow, which is going to give you higher conversions, right? Because it's a pain to leave the app, go to a website. What do you got to log in? Is that going to work? Your payment information, right? Just all those, every touch point in that process leads to people not going through and converting to the next step, right? Every click, every extra click is less people going through with the purchase. How much is that worth? How much fall off do you get if you give a slightly discounted price, not 30%, but 20%, 15% uh, discount by going outside of the app experience. We'll see. Now app developers will be able to test that out and um, you know, have more control over how they process payments. For companies like Spotify, um, this should be a big win, assuming that there's no other issues with you know, that this anti-steering provision has been subverted for all kinds of apps, not just mobile gaming, which is what Epic was, um, you know, trying to codify, right? This is a mobile gaming transaction kind of issue. What's interesting is this ruling comes like a week after Japan, we covered this, I think a week ago, Japan's Fair Trade Commission came out with basically the same ruling, like literally the same thing. You have to let people pay outside of the app. The U.S. was not first to do this. Japan actually was. Actually, South Korea has gone even a step further. Um, so, yeah, I'd say this is a great step in the fight to rein in big tech. It hurts Apple, but, I mean, not so much. I mean, it's a little bit. It'll hurt them a little bit. This is like a thorn in their side, which is good because they don't get many thorns. This is why 
um, this was all focused on gaming. So high spending gamers. In the third quarter of 2017, high spenders accounting for less than half a percent of all Apple accounts, right? So 50 basis points of all Apple accounts spent a mass majority of their spend in games via IAP, which is in-app payment. And they generated 53.7% of all App Store billings, right? So 50 basis points of users accounted for over 50% of all App Store billings for the quarter, paying in excess of $450 each in a quarter, right? These, each of these people spent over $450 in three months on uh, gaming. iPhone gaming, not even like PC or console gaming, which is much more engaging and interactive and fulfilling. Mobile gaming, ugh. In that same quarter, medium spenders spent $15 to $450 a quarter, and low spenders spent less than $15 a quarter, constituting 7.4% and 10.8% of all Apple accounts. Accounted for 41.5% and 4.9% of all App Store billing. So literally, gaming accounts for the large majority of App Store billing is coming from uh, gaming. So it's these mobile app gamers, uh, and, and, and they're the ones that would be motivated to, to save money by actually doing this. Um, maybe some users like Spotify... Uh, and others, but you know those would be more of the fringe examples than you know gaming is really the the large majority of where the spend is on the app store so it's good weird that that Apple was not considered a monopolist epic coming at this you know from their own point of view the 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 big issue that still remains with Apple and Android uh is their censorship of what apps get approved um, into the store. So obviously they're not approving gaming apps that, that link for these in-app uh, payments, but uh, the censorship around apps and what kind of content um, are in the apps is also another point of contention, which is more of a free speech issue than it is a kind of payment flow anti-steering provision issue. Uh, so there hasn't been an active case brought against that, uh, but that would be the other bit which has blocked a lot of um, apps that Apple and Google deem to be you know, not ideologically fit for uh, its consumers to then be ruled out of being able to have a place in the App Store and then run on the iPhone. Okay, so next topic is Article, somewhat recent article here saying exactly what we were talking about over the past year now with TikTok. What was the, the article that we referenced maybe nine months ago now was like American head Chinese body where you had really just the, the sales and marketing arm of TikTok is in the United States. TikTok is owned by ByteDance, Chinese company, and all of the product and development resources for TikTok are in China. And what we were talking about on the show is that there's no way for you to just up and rip out this workforce from China and move them outside of China. It just, it doesn't work that way. You have thousands of people building this product, you know, and they were going to do the deal with Oracle, for example. There was just no way that you were realistically going to be able to move this outside of the country in any measurable period of time. 
Um, just such a gargantuan effort. Same thread exists for Zoom. That's actually, I think, where we first draw, drew the analogy. Um, is Zoom is actually registered a U.S. company. Sales and marketing in the U.S., engineering and product are in China, and they're not going to be able to split this thing out. They're trying to move them, I guess, to Southeast Asia. It just, just doesn't work. It was built there. All the engineers are there. You got thousands of people just with labor markets as tight as they are, just not realistic. These articles all basically just confirmed all of that. So TikTok has worked to separate its operations from Chinese owner ByteDance, particularly as foreign governments have scrutinized or punished the video app over fears, not fears, actual occurrences that Beijing has hijacked it for its own purposes, right? These U.S. media companies like to act like these are just conspiracy theories. Is that they've actually occurred. TikTok is incorporated in California. Its CEO sits in Singapore. It's all just smoke and mirrors. Its chief information security officer is based in the U.S. Who cares? Just a figurehead. And the company says data on its hundreds of millions of users are stored on servers outside China. A lie. But TikTok's ties to China remain deep. There are more algorithm engineers in China working on TikTok's video recommendation engine than in any other international offices, according to people with knowledge of the matter. Oh, yeah, that's the actual truth. That's not the stuff that's on the surface. This is all just show. All this other stuff. ByteDance also has Chinese-based product managers, monetization experts, and data analysts who all work on, guess what, TikTok. And ByteDance Beijing office recently sought to hire a senior engineer to analyze, guess what, TikTok's user data, which isn't supposed to be in China, but it is. <laughs> it's just, it's a joke. But, right, the information, they open up the article saying, well, they've, foreign governments have scrutinized TikTok over a kind of alleged fear. Even though then, second paragraph, they say Beijing, uh, ByteDance Beijing office just hired a senior engineer to analyze TikTok's user data, which is not supposed to be in China. But it's an alleged fear uh, that the Chinese could be using this data inappropriately. Hmm. Not to mention censoring and feeding and changing human behavior, right? And the Chinese are masters at this. 50 Cent Army, we've covered this for years now. How they can use information to change people's perception, to change what people think is true and not true. TikTok has said it's creating more teams in the US, Europe, and Singapore. Sales and marketing teams. But it has said little about what ByteDance China-based employees do for TikTok. Duh. ByteDance official Chinese website earlier this week had a job posting whose responsibilities include mining user portraits based on massive user behavior. <laughs> it's on the hiring website. ByteDance also removed two other Chinese-based postings that mentioned TikTok, one for a product manager and the other for a search algorithm engineer after the information contacted them. The company has said over the past year it placed significant restrictions on any access to such data from China. A Chinese-based ByteDance employee who works on TikTok said they typically work, typically, so not always, typically, work with the app's anonymized aggregated data and don't have access to personal information unless President Xi wants to really find something out. And, you know, these think tanks are really on top of it. It's easier for the Chinese government to squeeze people in China, said James Andrew Lewis from a bipartisan think tank. 
Hmm. Lewis also said Beijing's tightening control over Chinese internet giants through actions such as taking a board seat in their subsidiaries makes it harder for ByteDance to argue that it's independent from the government. Um, we covered this. You had now, now literally a member from the CCP sits on the board of ByteDance. They actually bought shares in the company at an insanely discounted price and now have a board seat. Can't trust TikTok. You can't trust any of these Chinese tech companies. You'd be a fool if you did. Uh, in related news, article here saying hedge funds are slashing exposure to U.S. stocks that count on China. Came out with a, uh, we covered this maybe a couple weeks ago, where you had 8.1% of Alibaba's investor base sell off their shares in the past few weeks. Alibaba, all of the Chinese tech monopoly stocks have been way down the past number of months, really starting back in the fall with Ant Financial. Um, now it looks like for Ant Financial, they're going to actually have to spin off their lending app into a completely separate product. So where the U.S. judge Gonzalez Rogers says, you know, I don't want to micromanage the product uh, of Apple in, in that case. Instead, you've got the Chinese government saying, yeah, Ant Financial, you're going to have to split apart these products. The lending app is going to, have to be a completely separate experience, might even have to be a completely separate business, might even have to be capitalized completely differently than Ant. We'll see how far they go. But you want to talk about U.S. courts versus just Chinese government. There's no comparison here. Chinese government saying, yeah, you got to break this out. We want separate apps. We don't want these apps, these experiences linked. Break it out. Or I'll just shut your whole company down. And probably and and put your your founder back through reconditioning when when Jack Ma just disappeared for a month, right? One of the richest guys in Asia, just gone for a month. No one could find the guy. Uh, completely normal. So hedge funds are slashing slashing exposure to U.S. stocks that count on China. This is long overdue. This has been needed. The China bubble is a massive bubble. Here's my favorite analogy to this. Hey, put a hundred dollars into this new crypto coin boom and but in order to get the coin you got to go get this crazy different kind of wallet different experience to get that coin okay so boom you put a hundred dollars in whoa look my hundred dollars is now worth ten thousand dollars i just made nine thousand nine hundred dollars i put a hundred bucks in i have now ten thousand dollars worth of this new crypto coin hey that's great uh can you take the money out of the wallet and can you can you withdraw your ten thousand dollars? No, no, I can't. Um, but I made like ten thousand dollars, right? Did you make ten thousand dollars or did you lose a hundred dollars? I think you lost a hundred dollars. That is China for U.S. investors, unfortunately, and U.S. companies that have invested in China. You can't get your money out. You can't get your ownership out. They've stuck you into a JV. You're probably in a if you have majority control. It's probably just on paper and you really don't have majority control. You've put all this money into China. You've made money on paper in China. You can't take the money out. Good luck. U.S. investors, thank God, are waking up to this. You can see here, companies with elevated sales from China were dumped as fund managers cut their net holdings by 26% over the month through late August to the lowest level since April 2020. That may seem like not that big of a deal, but you have to remember since April 2020, we've had trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars pumped into this economy, right? These investors 
are scrambling for places to put this money. Scrambling. The the we I was just talking about the the inflation that we see with tech stocks and just the insane valuations we see with tech stocks. Investors are looking anywhere and everywhere to put this money. But they're not putting it in China. Hedge funds that make both bullish and bearish wagers on stocks are slashing their exposure to American companies that lean heavily on China for business, such as Las Vegas Sands, uh, you know, with the Macau gambling, General Motors. Those counting on, on the Asian country on China for supplies saw their ownership fall 17% from the bottom range of the past year. So um, 26% for companies that have a lot of sales in China. 17% dip for companies that have a lot of their supply chain linked to China. Love this news. Why do I love this news? Not because I'm anti-China. I am anti-CCP. I am anti-communism. I am anti-totalitarian authoritarian regimes. Full stop. What I am also anti is American companies and American investors being defrauded by fraudulent CCP-linked authorities, right? Whether it's the lack of financial transparency and regulation that we have in China, right? You you look at the um, Chinese stocks that are listed on U.S. exchanges, we have no visibility, right? They they could be cooking the books for, for, you know, any number of things that we have no visibility and they don't have to... Every other country in the world that lists on a U.S. exchange has to comply with a much higher degree set of regulation, auditing, transparency to inform U.S. investors. That's not even what this article is talking about. This article is talking about U.S. companies that have exposure to China. So think about the exposure you have as a U.S. investor in a Chinese company. That's not even what this is talking about. Then you have the, a step down from there, the exposure of having sales come from China. because. As the Chinese government just, this trend is only going to continue. It's not going to, right? The Chinese government is going to just do a 180 and say, you know what? We actually became too authoritarian. Let's like, uh, let's just, you know, let, let's open back up again. No, it's not going to happen. They're only going to be, become more restrictive, more controlling. And that means bad news for foreign owned companies or foreign controlled, you know, minority controlled JVs in China. The rhetoric against foreign companies, American companies. We saw what they did during the trade negotiations between the U.S. and China in, in, um, you know, leading up to 2020, um, kind of vilifying American companies. Um, we've seen them try to do this with Tesla, for example, to try and exert pressure over Elon. I think it's related to SpaceX and Starlink and other things, but maybe they wanted some of his technology for the EV charging. We'll see. I don't know, but... You can't trust what's going on in China. Um, If you're trying to sell stuff over there, if you're looking at making more investments over there to support your sales, I would cut that and really just try and minimize this. I love that these hedge funds are waking up to this. Supply chains, we have the CEO of Zometry, um, a $3 billion B2B marketplace, uh, helping local uh, American machinists create custom parts and engineered products and parts uh, for you know, uh, for companies that need on-demand or prototype parts. So how can we bring the supply chain back to the United States? How can we make Made in America a thing? Again, we talked about that. Go watch the video. It's fantastic. Sad to see 
Apple, the shining example of a U.S. tech monopoly, take off designed in California. Remember that designed in California? It's gone. You want to know why? Because the Chinese didn't like it. Apple caved to their supply chain China to take off designed in California. Steve Jobs rolling over in his grave. Such a sad, pathetic move on Tim Cook's part. U.S. hedge funds are getting more concerned about the place of China in the global economic system. They're less willing to bet on the continued favorable trend that the country has had. Here are the Chinese tech stocks uh, in red compared to um, the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100. Very smartly, Wisdom Tree, the plat, actually limited the exposure of Chinese uh, companies over a year ago. Somehow they saw this coming. Uh, so Chinese, actually all foreign exposure, China included, is limited 10% of the overall weighting of the index. At the moment, U.S. companies doing business in China face potential risks of slower growth in the country and increased regulatory scrutiny. In either case, the logical thing to do would be to reduce your exposure to companies that have either one of those situations. It's only going to get worse. Last topic is uh, Amazon business is... Um, you know, one of the bright spots in the Amazon platform conglomerate matrix, uh, it is projected to do by Applico's estimates $75 billion in GMV by 2023. Uh, they are now a top 10 distributor by volume, uh, Amazon businesses, in just a few years' time. So you have the general manager of Amazon business talking about COVID and, you know, digital transformation. So some highlights here. Talks about in 2015 when they launched Amazon Business, uh, and that sh that she has been there, and um, they are now live in nine countries. They have over five million business customers, and as we've covered, they have over 25 billion dollars in global GMV. Interesting story on how Amazon Business got started. It's actually Amazon Supply. Amazon Supply was actually a separate website. You could not get to it from Amazon.com. And it was actually not, didn't have any third-party sellers on it. It was actually all 1P. It was all product that Amazon was taking on balance sheet and then reselling. Uh, they actually ultimately shut that down, Amazon Supply, and then a year or so later launched Amazon Business. So they took those learnings. Didn't, it didn't do particularly well, but they took those learnings, baked in uh, that that product offering into the amazon.com experience a lot of changes to the workflows to cater to business customers and the needs of distributors and manufacturers and for the consumer so they bake that functionality the workflow the fulfillment the different aspects of the business in and then they also launched as a true marketplace with 1p product yes but also 3p 3p third-party seller product she highlights here you may not know that over half of Half of their $25 billion in GMV actually comes from third-party sellers. That split is actually much more so. You look at the early days of Amazon on the consumer side, they were much more so 1P weighted. Until only about a few years ago, Amazon been around since 1994, right? So 20-plus uh, years into their marketplace business, 
did it take them to actually cross that threshold of having over 50% of the products uh, sold on Amazon B2C marketplace come from third-party sellers? Amazon business much earlier in its life cycle, hitting that threshold much sooner. So talking about digital transformation, did the pandemic accelerate uh, these digital transformations? I do think the pandemic has vastly accelerated that transition. There's a lot of shifting of the procurement function in the workforce to remote and online. It eliminated some of the barriers and it put the focus, frankly, on the core mission of the companies to eliminate friction and barriers in sourcing. She's talking about the customers, right? We believe there's an infinite number of opportunities for e-commerce or technology to help and get companies more focused on the core mission. So whether it's automating workflows such as replenishment, dialing policies into a curated buying experience that would have been very manual, just the basics of how do I found suppliers, how do I compare products and gather information. Classic case study is that Amazon Business helps Stanford. Yes, Stanford, very large customer, complex customer, the classic customer that you would expect needing all these value-added services, which large MRO distributors have been touting as their barrier uh, from, in, from aggressors like Amazon Business, has, has become an Amazon Business customer, Stanford has, and did a case study where they said that they reduced their procurement expenses, right? Procurement overhead, right? Um, what she's talking about here, automating workflows and centralizing buying policies across all the different colleges at Stanford had reduced their manual overhead, labor overhead of procurement and, and all this by over 50% at Stanford. Here's a question around artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, and how Amazon business is using that. On the Amazon consumer website, there's features that you and I have always loved. The ability to find alternates for products. It's rumored that over 40% of Amazon sales are from the product recommendations engine. Uh, to get reminders when it's time to replenish something, to get useful feedback on product details. Those are all core capabilities under the hood, of course. The key difference between B2B and B2C is that B2B customer wants a lot more control. We've invested in a number of technologies that are sourced by and informed by some of these technology innovations that help our administrators and procurement leaders consider and control and dial in policies as to which suppliers they want <clears throat> their employees to source from, what types of brands of products are preferred, and what restrictions they want to impose, right? So centralizing a lot of those procurement functions, that's like that Stanford uh, case study. What was interesting was this report that Amazon Business came out with a few months ago there are key trends driving change in the next era of e-procurement. A lot of this is focused more on catering to business customers than talking about recruiting sellers and suppliers, right? 96% of buyers who shifted more procurement online during the pandemic said they anticipate their organizations will continue doing more e-procurement even after pre-pandemic business functions resume. Yikes. 83% of buyers surveyed said their companies plan to increase their purchasing budgets reserved for black and minority-owned businesses this year. That was what she was talking about, the end of the MDM interview article, and one of the things that I think helped Amazon win that uh, Stanford University client. Top three actions organizations engaged in as a result of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. We've more fully digitized our purchasing process. We've streamlined our purchasing process, committed more of our spending to a specific supplier. In 2020, 38% of buyers made more than 50% of purchases for their organizations online. 
more than 50%. According to research from McKinsey, the pandemic accelerated 10 years of e-commerce adoption into just three months. There's the chart. What did COVID-19 do? Have 10 years of e-commerce penetration in three months. Look at that spike. And the other data point, right, from their, their first finding here is that 96% of buyers who shifted more procurement online said they anticipate they will continue doing more e-procurement. So certainly some of that may come back down, but a lot of it's going to remain. Top three benefits of e-procurement for buyers. Access to a wider range of products, better prices, and faster ordering. And if you look at her, the end of her MDM article, our interview here, um, that's what she gets at, right? The first one is the bread and butter, selection, price, and convenience. Top five overall buyer procurement priorities in 2021. I thought this one was interesting. 51% saying fast free shipping. 43% saying quantity discounts. 28% say guided buying features. 27% multi-user accounts. And 20% on ability set spending limits, right? So these last three are those kind of like centralized procurement features and that kind of stuff, right? Um, and these first two, fast free shipping and quantity discounts. Top three pain points of e-procurement. 44% of online solutions have too many supply chain disruptions and shipping delays. 41% said it's too hard to get in touch with salespeople and company representatives. 40% product information descriptions <clears throat> are inadequate. Now, this isn't Amazon specific. This is just in general. I was actually surprised in the MDM interview, she didn't touch on as much around product data and the importance of product data and what they've been doing in that arena. I would have thought the AI machine learning question was right up her alley around that. Um, product data is so important. We just did a video covering this last week. On this one, the 41% to get in touch with salespeople, company representatives. Don't you think that Amazon Business doesn't do this? For, for Stanford, I'll go back to this case. What, what Amazon did for Stanford is they said, okay, yeah, we really want to win this account. Uh, we'll, we'll dedicate like a couple people. Here you go. Hey, you want dedicated account managers? Here you go, Stanford. And Amazon has staffed uh, bodies directly onto the Stanford account to accomplish and to you know, mitigate this concern. It's too hard to get in touch with salespeople, company representatives. The platform, if they really want to get your account, they'll just throw some people at it. It will be worth it to get these large customer accounts that want this. Everyone else doesn't get all that TLC. But for the big accounts, they are, they are not protected just because a distributor has salespeople and you got someone to call. The Amazon business is doing this too. And this one, Amazon, yeah, they, they're getting their fulfillment figured out pretty darn well, I would say. Where is this an inhibitor for Amazon is heavy stuff, uh, chemical, metal, um, heavy goods, not pack and shippable. We've, we've, we've covered that. We, we covered uh, some industrial marketplaces that have raised recently, like Node and Chemical, uh, Rebus uh, in Metal, having some, some uh, recent fundraisers. Sellers. Now, this is looking at uh, third-party sellers on Amazon. Top three sales priorities for 2021, providing a positive customer experience. This is not specific to selling on Amazon. Second priority, expanding my customer base. I want more sales. And that's why they're looking to use and sell on and flirt with the devil that is Amazon and sell on Amazon. So 
So the good news is both buyers and sellers understand what? The importance of product data. According to buyers, 83% said top five most valuable features are online product comparison features and detailed product descriptions. And according to sellers, detailed product descriptions, customer reviews were, you know, their top two. So that's lining up. Really interesting information from Amazon here. Um, they're growing like a weed. They can be defeated. They can be thwarted. Time to act is now. Thanks very much for joining us on Winner Take All. I will talk to you soon.